Well, good morning again. Um, like I said, I'm John Wyman, a mission pastor here at Fellowship of Grace. And uh, as we continue with this worship, what we're going to do now is we're going to continue in our study of the book of Romans. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. And in here, what we see is Paul is finishing a pretty major, pretty large section within the book of Romans that he's been writing on a theme by making a, a very clear and bold statement, a, really a statement of victory in his conclusion to truths that he's been teaching us and presenting to us throughout chapters 5 through 8. And what we're going to see Paul use is he's going to use a series of questions and statements within these verses, which in this passage, where he builds on the major truths that he's laid out for us to bring us to a logical conclusion that we have a great assurance in the unending and sustaining love of God. That's really what this is all about. So if you have your Bible with you, or if you have a Bible app on your phone, I'd invite you to to just read along with me as as we go through uh, chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. And in there, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ Jesus? So tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Just an amazing piece of scripture, just a really powerful verses there that we're going to get to go through today. But I want to start, before we kind of dive into it, I want to take a look at, at how Paul starts this off. Because he starts it off with kind of an interesting question. He says, what then shall we say to these things? And before we dive into the passage, before we start breaking that out and, and, and unpacking it, I think it's important that we're clear on what Paul is talking about, what he means when he says these things. For the, for the remainder of our time this morning, when, when we talk about these things that Paul's talking about, I'm going to use the word truths, okay? These are truths that Paul has laid out for us throughout chapters 5 through 8. And I'll just go through them real quickly. You've got them actually in your handout there to refer back. But we've, we've seen seven, I'm going to highlight seven specific truths that Paul's laid for us as, as we started in chapter 5 all the way through today. And what we see is, number one, is through Christ, through what Jesus Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection, we have peace and reconciliation with God. We saw that in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And then as chapter 5 continued, we saw that in our flesh, in Adam, there is death. However, in Christ, there is life. Then when we moved into chapter 6, we had this great message, this great understanding that sin has been put to death. Sin doesn't have power anymore. But we also understood, as Pastor Michael told us, you gotta serve somebody. We understood that we serve either sin 
or obedience. It's one or the other. We can't have both. And then moving into chapter 7, we understood that even though we have spiritual minds, even though that we have an understanding of, of, of who God is and how we would live for him now, our spiritual minds still war with the sin of the flesh that's in us. That's a struggle that is real. That's a struggle that we continue to work through, and frankly, we will until Christ returns. And then we've gone into chapter 8. We, we had another great message that we understood that we are heirs to God and we're heirs with Christ. And what that means is, is you think of being an heir, you know, and all the benefits and all the, all the great things that come with being an heir. Those, that, that's what we get in Christ. And then last week, Christopher did, a, did an amazing job kind of leading us through understanding that, yes, we have suffering, yes, we have groaning, but we truly do have a future glory. So when, when Paul says, what shall we say of these things, what he's talking about are these seven truths, and we're going we're gonna to kind of come back to those. So, so as we look at Paul's question, when Paul says, what then shall we say to these, I, I, I think what we come up with is, is we have three answers today in, in what we say to these truths. And the first one is, there's no opposition. And we see that in verses 31 and 32. So let's go ahead and read that together for a moment. And in there, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, when Paul asks the question, what then shall we say? Think of what he's really saying is, based on these seven truths, based on these truths that I've laid out for you, what logically follows from what I've presented to you? You know, what is the logical conclusion that we can confidently draw from these seven truths? And as we look at that question, what then shall we say? It can also lead us to some deeper questions, some, some, some more detailed questions, such as, what have we learned about God and his love for us? What have we learned about our relationship with God? What have we learned about our eternity? And then what comforts and what assurances do we get from these seven truths? Now, I, I do want to be clear. You'll notice there, Paul, after he asked the initial question of what then should we, should we, should we say to these things, he says, if God. Now, in, in English, you know, if is kind of an uncertainty. You know, it's kind of like, well, if this is all true, maybe it might be something to take a look at. You know, it's kind of, maybe. But that's not the word Paul used. Paul actually used a Greek word that th there's, no, there's no doubt in it at all. It's actually a statement of certainty. If, if you were to, to, to translate it more, more fully, what it really say is, since God is for us, how could someone possibly succeed in opposing us? And I think as we look to Scripture, we can already start to see some of the answers to that question. For instance, Psalm 27, verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is, my strong, is the stronghold of my life. Of who shall I be afraid? Later in, in Psalm 118, verse 6, the psalmist writes, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? See, Paul doesn't ask the question, who's against us? 
you know, as if he's trying to come up with a list of folks to, to guard against or to be watchful for or to defend against. That, that's not what he's getting to here, you know? He, he isn't asking if anyone is opposed to Christians or opposed to Christianity. That's kind of a given. That's an understood starting point that, yes, there will, be, there will always be people who are opposed to Christianity. There will always be people who are opposed to Christians. His question gets to who can succeed against us? Just to give you kind of a, a goofy example, you could, in theory, have a high school football team take the field and line up against the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, they would be opposing the Chiefs, but they wouldn't be very successful. And, and that's kind of what Paul's getting to here. Just the fact that you say, I oppose you, you know, I line up against you, doesn't mean you're successful. You know, Paul, Paul's point is, there is no success in that, in the, in, when you take that on. You know, there's a lot of people that are opposed to Christianity. Paul's saying, what difference does that make? Just because you're opposed, I mean, you can almost read in there kind of the, okay, and? So what? We, we've still got Christ. We still win. That, that's his point. And the reason Paul is so convinced about this, and the reason that we can be convinced about this, is what God has already done, and we can see that in verse 32. In there, Paul talks about the fact that God has already given us the greatest gift, the amazing gift of Jesus Christ and the promise of more gifts through him. Now, it's interesting the way Paul lays out his argument. Usually when we build an argument, we do just that. You know, we start down here and then we build the next thing and then we build the bigger thing and we build the bigger thing. What Paul's doing actually here is a progression from bigger to smaller, from greater to lesser. He starts right off the bat in verse 32 going, I've already he's already given you Jesus Christ. He's already won. He's already giving you the greatest gift. He's already done the hard part. He's given Jesus as the perfect substitute for our sins. Now, as we take a look at this, I think it's important at this point that we really understand the gospel, that we really understand what the gospel is and what the gospel says. The truth is, each one of us rebelled. Each one of us disobeyed God. We turned against him, and we call that sin. We sinned against God, and as a result of that, our sin separates us from God. God's perfect. He can't sin. It's not in his nature. He can't be around sin. Therefore, in our sinful state, we had separated ourselves from him. But that wasn't the end of the story because God had a plan. He had a perfect plan, and that plan was to send Jesus Christ down to serve as the perfect sacrifice to take on our sin and to take on all the punishment for that sin. Past, present, and future. All the sin that has been done, we're doing now, and will do in the future. Truth, and as a result of that, Jesus was crucified. He died on a cross. And he, in doing that, he took the punishment for that sin. However, he rose three days later. And when he did that, he defeated death and he defeated sin forever. And when we place our faith in what he accomplished through his death and resurrection then we're saved. Then we're forgiven. Then the, the, the slate is wiped clean. We're, we, we call it being born again. We get to spend eternity with God in heaven as a result of that, as a result of that faith in what Jesus Christ accomplished. And all of that is true only because God didn't hold back his son from us, but gave him as a sacrifice for everybody who places their faith in him. 
See, God's already given his, his, his very best. And what's amazing is, not only did he give his very best, he gave his very best to us while we were still enemies of his, while we were still hostile to him, while we were still opposing him. So Paul's logical argument is, if he did that while we were still opposing him, how would he not continue? It's, it's illogical that he wouldn't continue to equip us and to arm us to live for him and to fight for him. And he did it for us all. He did it for everyone. No one gets left out of this. No one gets left behind of this. Now, let's make sure we understand what we say when nobody gets left out, no one gets behind. This is not some type of universalism. This is not everyone goes, there's a lot of different ways to go to heaven. We're all going the same place. You know, we're just taking different routes. That's wrong. That's a heresy. Okay? There's one way. John 14, 6 is very clear. I am the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But God finishes what he starts. See, Paul again asks the question of logic. If he's already given us Jesus Christ, if he's already given us a forgiveness through faith in him, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, let's be careful about all things as well. This, not, this passage is not some type of catch-all, you know, that, that kind of sees God as this, this free vending machine that, you know, all those things we want, all those things that make life pleasurable for us, that, that we don't have any problems, that we get everything we want, that's a prosperity gospel, and frankly, that's a heresy. That's not what he's talking about. God is not interested in making us happy. God is not interested in making us carefree. God is interested in us in making us joyful. God is interested in growing us with him. Prosperity gospel is a false theology. What Paul is talking about here are the requirements that we need to live for him. You know, these could be spiritual gifts that he gives us. They could be specific gifts, skills, excuse me, that he gives us. They could be someone to disciple us or to walk alongside of us. The truth is, we really can't come up with a complete and definitive list because it's in God's sovereignty to equip each one of us based on the, his plan for us and, 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 and our needs. But just as Paul's question shows that since God has already given us the greatest gift in Jesus Christ, and that we know he finishes what he starts, the only logical that he will continue to give us what we need. So if we have what we need to fight against all those enemies, and we're fighting with Christ under his power, then the only logical conclusion is there is no opposition. Now, since we understand the fact that there is no opposition, that no opposition can succeed against God, and therefore, when we're with him, no one can succeed against us, the logical conclusion is that there can't be any condemnation against us. There can't be any conviction of us. And we see that in verses 33 and 34. And in there, Paul writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who, inter who indeed is interceding for us? Paul's asking two basic questions here. Who can make a charge and who can convict on that charge? Again, Paul's talking to Christians here. The elect, those are those who have placed their faith in what Christ accomplished. 
through his death and resurrection. What Paul is really getting to here, what he's driving at with these questions is, it's a question of authority. For instance, let's say we finish worship today and we're out in the foyer, we're kind of saying goodbye, and I come up to you and I go, you know what? I'm going to charge you with robbery today. Yeah, some of you are laughing. Okay, that's fine. Because you're going to have a lot of, not more of you laughing, good. You're going to have a lot of, di- there's going to be a lot of different reactions to that. Some of you are going to kind of wonder, have I lost my mind? Some of you are going to kind of snicker. Some of you are going to think I've got a really warped sense of humor. But I guarantee not one of you is going to go down to the Justice Center and go, hey, um, Wyman told me he was going to charge me with robbery, so uh, here I am. I mean, this is not going to happen. Because I don't have any authority to do that. It's ridiculous. I don't have that authority. And it's the same with accusations and judgments against us. Look, Satan's going to continue to poke. Satan's going to continue to stir up things, stir up things in our past, stir up things in our present, deceive and lie. That's going to continue to happen. Other people will say some pretty uninformed and pretty hateful things. That's a truth. There's never been a shortage of enemies. And, And frankly, until Christ comes again, there won't be a shortage of enemies to make accusations against God's people. But Paul uses a very important word in here as he describes this. He uses the word justified. It's a legal term. It's not guilty. If you want to think of it this way, it's just as if I'd never sinned. The slate is clean. There is no no conviction. God is the judge, and he's already acquitted us. He's already deemed us to be not guilty through Jesus Christ. Since God is the one who justifies it can't be overthrown. It's not, it's not like there's some you know, appeal system where someone can go above God and, and overthrow that. That's, that's foolishness. That's ridiculous. It's final. This isn't a case of, hey, you know what? You're justified, unless you mess up again. Hey, you know what? You're on the right track towards being justified. Keep it up. It's not some you know, like probationary justification. No, it's final. Paul has laid out an overwhelmingly compelling and logical argument for our justification through faith in what Christ accomplished. So the question becomes, if God isn't listening to these accusations, why are we? It doesn't mean that we don't take our sins seriously. We do. We take sin very seriously. What it means is we don't let Satan and we don't let others suggest or deceive us that God's promise of salvation, God's promise of, being, of spending eternity in him isn't real, isn't true. We place all our confidence in the assurance of the justification God's already given us. You'll see in verse 34, Paul mentions Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Now, if by his death and resurrection, Christ reversed our condemnation. He reversed our conviction. He affected our salvation. Who's going to undo that work? There's no answer. There's no logical answer to that question. It can't be done. Let's go back to our understanding of the gospel. Christ died for our sins and paid the full price, the full penalty. It is paid in full. He rose showing that his death was effective in overcoming sin. Go back to the third truth that's in your bulletin there. From Romans 6, 1 to 14. The power of sin has been put to death. It doesn't have that power anymore. And Paul also explains that not only did Christ rise and and complete his victory over death, he also sits at the right hand of of, of the Father. 
And this isn't just Paul suggesting that here. It's throughout scriptures. Saul's, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, Hebrews, 1 Peter, Revelation. Each one of them explicitly state the fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. It goes back to the question of authority. Paul does a really good job here of tracing a progression of Jesus dying, of Jesus rising, and Jesus sitting at the right hand. Nobody else can match that authority. Therefore, no one else can condemn or convict. It's just a logical progression. But then Paul takes it just a step farther, and he talks about intercession. Now, if you look up intercession in the dictionary, you'll see that it's an intervening on someone's behalf, basically to reconcile or resolve differences between two parties. Again, go back to the first truth that we talked about. We have a peace and a reconciliation from God. We had a broken relationship because of our sinful state. Jesus Christ mended that for us. He repaired it for us. That's a true statement. But to a Roman, when Paul wrote this, it actually had a clearer, stronger meaning. Because in Roman governance at the time, there were several authoritative bodies within, within the, uh, under the emperor, within the Roman Empire and one of which was called the tribunes. They were kind of a lower body within the governance structure. Now, tribunes couldn't make laws like the Senate could. Um, they, they couldn't make rulings like magistrates could. But they had a very interesting authority, a rather unique authority called intercesio. Sounds a lot like intercession. And, and under this authority, a tribune could intercede on behalf of a Roman citizen could actually prohibit an act of a magistrate or another official. What would happen is a Roman citizen could appeal the decisions of the magistrates to the, to the tribunes, and the tribunes had veto authority. The only person a tribune could not veto was the emperor. I mean, that, think about the impact of that. Think about if, if you had some trouble here in, in, in Parkville or North Kansas City and, you know, someone had made a ruling against you and you just picked up the phone and called your tribune and said, yeah, I need you to veto this. He's be gone. That, that's the power that, that Paul's talking about that Christ has in terms of our condemnation and our, and, and our conviction. That's the impact of it. So let's continue with the progression because since we've established that there's no authority to make a charge and we've established that through Jesus there's no condemnation and there's no conviction, then the last logical conclusion is there's no separation. It's just a logical progression. If we can't be charged, we can't be convicted. If we can't be convicted, we can't be separated. Let's take a look at what Paul says here in verses 35 to 39. In there he writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. That's a pretty powerful statement there. You know, Paul lists several trials, several, several difficult things there, you know, tribulations, 
important question to ask ourselves is, what is my attitude when the pressures of life, the circumstances of life, the changes of life, they come into my life? I mean, one option could be that I get mad, I blame God, I blame everybody else, and I spend the rest of my life fussing around. It's an option. What Paul's suggesting here is the other option, the better option, the true option is to turn, over to turn all our problems over to God and rely on Him, even when we're scared, even when we're uncertain, even when we're hurt. Look, it's not just that these conditions and trials can't separate us from Christ's law. That's a true statement. They can't. But it's more than that. See, the truth is, when we completely empty ourselves and turn, us, turn, turn our problems over to him, like we just we take, take our wheelbarrow of junk, okay? And we just roll it up and say, God, I can't handle this. I, you got to take this. And I, I'm just emptying that wheelbarrow. All my junk. I'm done with it. We completely rely on him in that state. And, and, and that can be difficult, okay? But when we have that faith, what happens is we actually grow closer to him. Christopher did an amazing job leading us through verses 18 to 30 last week and, and told a really inspiring story of how he sought Jesus and took more joy in his relationship with him through his personal trials. Well, the truth is, when difficult times come and we put ourselves in God's hands, we put ourselves completely in God's hands, when we say, your will, your way, the only possible result is for us to grow closer to him. It's the exact opposite of separation. It's the only thing that can happen. But more importantly, we've got to understand this, because God never changes, and his, therefore his love for us never changes. It's not just about us. Although we do hold to him, we hold tightly to him, he holds tighter onto us. He cannot, we cannot be pulled from his hand. John 10 and 28 tells us that. When we have trouble, we get an entirely different perspective when we bring eternity into the picture. When we know that we can't ever be pulled out of his grip, out of his hand, out of his loving arms. That's why James says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various types. For you know that the testing of your faith brings steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you'll be perfect and complete in everything, lacking in nothing. See, there's nothing in this world, disease, marital problems, me medical problems, you know, just the minutia of life, the death by a thousand cuts we go through every single day or every single week, you know? Trouble at work, you know, is nothing that will lessen God's love for us. Look, these things will try, but they won't succeed. They'll make things very difficult. They'll make things very hard for us. But they simply aren't strong enough to turn us and pull us from God's love, and they never will. Christ raising, rising from the grave to prove that, and it secured it forever. Now, as we look at verses 35 and 36, it's kind of important that you understand what Paul is saying here. It's also important that we understand what he's not saying. He talks about suffering. Paul is not saying, go out and find ways to suffer for suffering's sake. That's not what he's talking about. He isn't saying that if we aren't constantly, you know, like miserable and, you know, the condition of our life is deteriorating, that we're somehow lacking in our walk with Christ. 
Okay, that's a works theology. That's a heresy. That's not true. That somehow our works saves us from, from being separated from, from, from God. That is absolutely not true. Our salvation, the fact that we can't be separated from God, is based on what he did, not what we do. The difference in what Paul is saying here is that when we follow Christ, then these hardships do come along with the obedience from him. He's saying there is suffering and hardship in the world. Christopher explained that very well for us last week. As Christians, we probably will have additional hardships. I just kind of throw one out there right now. Or we're going to talk about a few in a minute. But, you know, I think you know, many of us probably saw, you know, just horrendous comment by a, major news ne- a person on a major news network likening the vice president's faith in Christ to a mental illness. That's ridiculous, you know. But th- those are the things we have to go through. They're additional hardships. But just as we follow Jesus into death to sin, that sin and eternal death have no more power over us, that they don't control us anymore, that we're free from the power of us, when we do that, we do also follow him into suffering. But we have a great, great encouragement there. And I point you to the Beatitudes as as Jesus gives his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses uh, 10 and 11, where he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil on my account. Be glad and rejoice, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. See, the important part of that that passage there is that it's on my account. It's on Jesus' account. As these come, these things will come in when, to us while we're in a service, They'll, into his service. These things will happen because we don't deny our faith, because we don't put our limits on how or when or where or why we're going to serve others and serve him, where we're unashamed of giving our testimony about him and the transformation he's given in our life. When we take the same attitude that Christ took in the Garden of Gethsemane the night he was betrayed when he said, not my will, but your will. The truth is then, yes, we do join him in suffering. However, we also join him in glory. And that's the important part. Look, we've we've seen the examples. You lose your bakery. You lose your floral business because you were targeted and attacked because you wouldn't support a same-sex marriage. Business is gone. Still not separated from Christ. You can lose your job as a high school football coach because you defied a school district order not to pray with your players. Not not separated from Christ. A child or a young student can be told that they're not allowed to bring their Bible in to read quietly during an open reading period at school. Still not separated from Christ. You can take my business because I won't deny my faith in Christ, but you can't take away my eternity with him. My friends and my family, they can walk away from me. They can unfriend me. They can stop talking to me. They can start talking about me. Can't separate me from Jesus. My health can fail, but it can't take me away from Jesus' love. Example after example, time after time, the answer every time is no. It can't separate us. It can make us uncomfortable. It can be very difficult. It can be tragic, but it cannot separate us. Even in verse 36, where Paul uses Psalm 44.22 as an example there to explain how far earthly suffering can go, being physically persecuted every day, all day, even leading to being killed, it's not enough. That's why he uses a very graphic 
example there. Even the horrors and the atrocities we see directed at Christians today throughout North Africa and the Middle East still don't separate us. And that's difficult. However, in verse 37, Paul makes it clear that despite that truth that we join in Christ's suffering and the hardships on earth, in him we conquer those sufferings and those hardships. In him we win in the end. The key word in verse 37 is not more than conquerors. That's, that's not the important words. The important words are through him who loved us. That's, that's where the importance is. It isn't about our strength or our cunning or our knowledge or our experience or, or, or whatever that, that, that gets us through that. Simply through Christ. It's through the strength and the, and the abilities that he gives us because he loved us. Christ conquered each one of them. Therefore, when we're with him, we conquer with him. Again, let's go back to the truth that Paul established. And we see that we're heirs with him. That we join in his suffering, but also we join him in victory. It's a package deal. We get the whole thing. We get, as, as, as Christopher explained last night, future glory. And that's how Paul brings us to the great ending of this passage. By knocking off and, and, and refuting every doubt we may have about what or who could separate us from Christ. Romans 8, 31 to 39 is a passage of victory. It's a passage of triumph. It's a passage of joy, assurance, comfort, of extreme confidence because Paul has walked us through the logical argument that whatever continuing power of sin exists or weakness of our own flesh, hostility we face throughout the world, spiritual warfare that's all around us, our own fears, questions, doubts, unfounded accusations against them, whatever might possibly be out there, God still wins every day, every time, forever. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we win with him. Let's go to prayer. Lord, what, a, what an amazing piece of scripture you've given us today. What a great assurance we have that, that despite the trials that we face, despite the opposition to you and, and therefore to us when we're in you, there's no success in that opposition. There's nothing but future glory in you. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement of that, that as we go through our days, and sometimes those days are difficult, Lord, we can just look to you. We can, we can take our armload of stuff and just turn it over to you and say, Lord, just please take this and take me with you. Lord, we ask that as we understand this better, that you would lead us, you would give us a desire to take that message to others, that others who don't yet have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that we have a deep desire, it would bother us enough to get us up and get us out, to share that message with others, that they would know Jesus in a saving way. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, for the, for the great gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for scripture like this that continues to guide us. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.